Well, I'm delighted to be joined by former number four in the world, mm -hmm. James Blake. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jill. You're welcome. And so happy to have you here. I just want to talk about a few subjects. All right. And just about one, your playing career, very successful. Okay. One Davis Cup, also a quarterfinal of two slams. Mm -hmm. Do you miss it at all? Is my I, first question. I don't miss a lot of parts of it. There are a few things I do miss. One of the things I miss the most is actually the feeling of starting a Grand Slam or a big event uh, like a Masters 1000 and feeling prepared. Uh, all the work is done. You go out there and that's that's almost like the dessert is getting to play the matches. And I always felt like that first day of a big event was one of my favorite times because I felt prepared. I felt ready. And um, I know now and I remember how much hard work went into that feeling. So I don't miss that. I don't miss the fact that I was, you know, sore for about 14 years straight and um, feeling like I had to uh, had to be, you know, so well rested and do everything around a, a very specific schedule. I don't miss all of that, but I appreciate what it took and what was involved in the career. Um, I don't miss living out of a suitcase. Yeah. I love being home a lot more now. Um, I miss the camar camaraderie a little bit, the locker room. Um, now it's totally different. I've got the, I've got my family. That's the locker room and I, I get to see them every day. And it used to be the, the people that were competitors as well as friends in the locker room. So I miss, I miss some of them, but I still get to stay in touch with the ones I stayed really close with Marty fish, Andy Roddick, the Bryans, um, the guys that were together on Davis cup, Robbie Ginepri. So that's, um, that's helpful. So that you know, quells some of the, uh, the, the nostalgia. I was going to ask you about that, the camaraderie, because obviously mm -hmm. you're still around the sport doing mm -hmm. some commentating now. Do you still get that sense? Obviously, you keep in touch on the phone, but around yeah. the events. Yeah, it's, it is fun doing, um, doing the events sometimes because you run into some people you hadn't, you'd kind of forgotten about or you hadn't spent much time with and some of the people you, appreciate, uh, you appreciated competing against. Um, I see them now all as coaches because I'm getting very old and I catch up and, and have a beer and, and uh, reminisce a little bit and talk about how great we used to be and, and now getting older and fatter and out of shape. And oh my God, it's, um, it's a lot of fun. But um, yeah, First so of all, the, that's inaccurate. But it is um, it is fun to, to see some of the some of the guys that I you know wasn't as close with and get to know them a little better outside of the competition uh, element of it. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned um, Roddick and Fish and the ones you mm -hmm. keep in touch with, obviously. And I I remember reading a quote saying how much Andy Roddick in particular did a great job of keeping you guys together for mm -hmm. me and you as well. Mm -hmm. And I just talked to a coach the other day that was saying that the Italian Federation that he consults mm. for is doing a great job of that. How mm. important is that, that to have that support group while you're playing and, and traveling so much? Well, you know, tennis being such an individual sport, it, I think it, it, it depends a little bit on the era, the players, the individuals involved, because from what I, all I had heard, uh, it's all hearsay, but the, the generations before Andy and myself um, didn't necessarily get along that well. So they weren't exactly going to each other's weddings or um, spending time together in the off season or helping each other train. Um, Andy and myself and Marty and Robbie and Taylor um, and the Bryans, we all got along so well. We pushed each other that way through a friendly rivalries, yeah. through actually wanting each other to succeed. Um, and so I think that was really important for us. But I think in different dynamics, it may not be that way. This, this generation now, I think I almost feel like we kind of – 
changed the narrative entirely for American men's tennis because now I feel like Taylor and Riley get along great and Francis and they're all very uh, collegial. They're all supporting each other and wanting them all to do well. And the generation before them, the John Isner, Sam Querrey, uh, Jack Sock, they're all getting along really well also. And I like to see that. Um, I think it takes a certain kind of personality. I think Andy was kind of our leader. He was definitely our um, he was our Davis Cup stalwart. He was our closer for Davis Cup. And he was bearing the brunt of hearing, when's the next Agassi? When's the next Sampras? When's the next Chang? When's the next Courier? And so he took all of that heat for Marty Fish, for myself, wow. for Robbie Ginepri. And so uh, did, we always appreciate that. How did he that. do that? Just by talking to you and being open communication? Or? No, he just he, he was the one that was out front because he was the the highest ranked. He was the one that won a Grand Slam. So he was feeling the mo- he was dealing with the most pressure. And we all appreciated that because we all, uh, you know, some of us got that taste of it for 15 minutes. I was number one American for a hot minute. Marty was number one American for a hot minute. And to get that feeling of what it's like to, to hear that nonstop, uh, we really respected and appreciated what Andy did. And I think we all just, um, and when we pushed each other, you know, when we would practice together, you know, Andy wanted to work harder than me. I wanted to work harder than him. We wanted to have that competitiveness. And then as soon as we're done, it's, you know, I hope if I can't win the tournament, I hope you win the tournament. Yeah, and, that's um, awesome. yeah, it was, it was a great way to, I, I felt like it was a great way that we pushed each other. Now, it, but specifically about carrying that brunt of that pressure, is that yeah. something he openly talked about or was just solely his position? Is that something you oh, talked about amongst each other? We would talk about it in passing. We didn't we didn't really confront it head on, but we all knew. We all respected what he was doing, and we appreciated the the fact that he was taking every one of those questions and fielding them and, and, um, and how much he had to deal with, how much he had to hear, especially, you know, it, it almost made us feel a little a little bad when – uh, you know, some of us would lose early in an event, and Andy's the lone American left. We know he's hearing, "How come there aren't any more Americans? How come you're the only American?" Because then, the once in a while when he would lose early, and I'm still in it, I'd hear, "You know, how come there's no other Americans in it?" Well, you know, Andy's got a pretty darn high level of consistency. He's done great things. Let's not knock him for not being Pete Sampras or not being Andre Agassi, because those are some of the greats of all time. All right. And then also just just for you, for your your career and mm. everything that you've accomplished, I think I'm curious about, um, you know, what you learned along that path. And yeah. Well, let's start with that. What did you learn along, along that path? What did I learn? Um, what were the most important things you learned? You know, for me, I think I learned, um, I learned a lot about just trial and error. You know, you can uh, – Jill, you were an excellent player as well. You know – what training um, can make you successful, how hard you have to work, um, and there is, but there is also a line. I, I went through times in my career where I overtrained, and then I had to pull it back, and I, I probably undertrained for a bit, and then you have to find what works for you. You have to find the amount of pressure you're going to put on yourself. You have to find all these things, and if you're worrying about the external, the people criticizing and telling you um, what you should be doing or what you need to be doing as opposed to the people you trust, your coach, your trainer, your physio, um, the people in your team that are with you every single day. Um, I think I learned that trial and error is important and I learned that trusting those people is more important than trusting the people that just have a passing input in uh, in what they have to say and what they're seeing um, instead of trusting the people that are there with you every day and they're kind of in the trenches with you, which is... Um, which is what I learned. It took me a little while to learn that and to just focus on the people in my inner circle and what they believed and, and realizing, trusting that they're, they're the ones that have the best idea of how to help me, how to help me get to the next step in my career. And, um, it took a while, you know, those are the kind of, those are the only things I, I don't have any regrets about my career, about how hard I worked because it is all a learning process. The only thing I would say is if I could tell my 
18 year old self one thing it would be hey listen to listen to people that are most important to you don't take into account a lot of the kind of outside noise yeah and I think um, I think it's been, you retired in two thousand. I think we retired the same tournament actually, two thousand thirteen. Two thousand thirteen, yeah, yes. <laughs> Can you believe eight years have gone by? Uh, no, it's, crazy. it's crazy. It's gone so fast. Yeah, yeah. And I, you still look like you could you could play. You could lace them up and get out same. there. No, no, that's not yes. true. <laughs> but just looking, look, I mean, from that point on, like, and I know you've been commentating quite a bit. And mm. for me, I feel like that's I viewed a few things differently. Has yeah. that been accurate for you as well? Have you has the game looked different to you when you've been able to see it from that perspective as a yeah. It, it is because I, I I still try to be extremely optimistic when I'm a commentator because I feel like I remember when I was a player and thinking a lot of times the focus on the top players and then somewhat putting down some of the players that are lower ranked and I felt like that was so unfair because uh, you look at these players and I was I was in the locker room with these players I was on the training uh, on the practice courts with these players and these are really talented players yeah. that just aren't quite up to the same level of the Rodgers, the Rafas, the Novaks. And so I try to let people know that these guys are really good uh, and they're doing the same kind of work on the on the practice courts. They just maybe don't have quite the same ability to, to have that consistency that the top players have. So um, I try to think a, a pretty positive when I am a commentator, but I do see different strategies, different patterns. And, um, you know, nowadays there's so much more statistical uh, input. There's a mm-hmm. lot more data. There's a lot more analytics that goes into it than when we were playing. Right. Um, and so I, I'm learning a lot more through data, through sort of the money ball type of, uh, of strategies of, of, ten, of the game. And it's interesting to learn that way because I think – I wonder what my game would have been like if I had all of these analytics. And I wonder if it would have confused me. I wonder if it would have made me um, – more efficient as a player or it would have made me change some of the things that were that came a little more natural to me and I know there were definitely times on on tour where I was thinking a little bit too much and I was um, getting in my own way a little bit so I wonder how the analytics would have played uh, a role in my game if I had taken them as seriously as a lot of guys are now. I wonder that too because I feel like it's so much information Mm -hmm. and I just was able to interview Craig O'Shaughnessy. Oh a boy, few days that's ago a lot too. of information. It was. A, I mean, it's just the amount of data that's available yeah. and the amount of research yeah. and video analysis he does. Yeah. Do you feel like? I mean, I've talked to quite a few coaches that they feel like it's beneficial. Um, what I mean, from you seeing that as a commentator yeah. over and over again. I think it's another thing that's very individual because I actually remember Craig O'Shaughnessy being on a court when I was uh, practicing at the French Open one year, and I was doing something that was very natural. I'm getting ready for a match at a, at a major, and he wanted to change a drill because of a, a certain tactic that he thought the person I was hitting with um, was going to need to use. And I just remember thinking, no, this is – this is just an off day in between when I need to play a match. I need to worry about just getting rhythm, yeah. just getting a little bit of rhythm, uh, play a couple points and move on, not focusing so much on something that now is going to go into my brain um, from the first point tomorrow when I'm supposed to play this match. And so I think it's an ind- and some people love that. The, p- the player he was working with, I think, was excited about this. Like, this is something I'm going to think about in my match tomorrow. And I remember um, – just thinking you know what this isn't exactly for me and I think there are some players that are a little more feel uh, some players that have uh, more of routines that they want to stick with and that's what's going to get them in the best frame of mind so I think as a coach 
it's great for any coach to have all that information. It's just how they can communicate it to their player in the most beneficial way. I think that's, that's why I think coaching jobs are extremely difficult yeah. because they need to find a way to get all of that information, filter it down to what their player can use and need. And the only times I've actually even entered into the coaching sort of realm, yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't, but I've, I've offered for some of the young Americans, if they ever want to come see me while I'm in, at home in San Diego, they're welcome to do it. A couple have, and I, every time I call my coach, my old coach, Brian Barker, from when I was on tour, and I'll be like, why didn't you tell me this is so hard? I was like, I have a thousand things I wanted to say to each one of these kids, and I can only say one. Because yeah. I know that will not mess them up. If anything, it will help them. But the other thousand things I want to say, it could, be, it could mess them up a little bit. It could make them think too much. It could have this kind of a negative impact. So I hold my tongue. And you had to do that for the entire my entire career. You had to hold your tongue. He's like, "Yeah, it sucks. Like I want to say so much stuff, but I know yeah. the only you have to be so filtered with what you say to these players, to certain players, and that there's some players that want to hear just uh, an abundance of information, yeah. every single point, because every single shot, obviously, someone wins, someone loses. So every single point you lose, I could have done something different. What could I have done? And you could say something every single point. But I don't think that's effective for a player. Some players love to hear it. Every yeah. point, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? That was never me. I, I thought a lot more big picture type stuff. What, what were some of the best things Brian said to you? Would you say that helped you? Oh, Brian helped me in so many ways. I mean, he turned me, he, he helped me just to be in general more positive. He helped me to focus um, a lot more of my energy on positive things. I, I, I can get relatively negative on court at times. I was going to say you're pretty positive. I, well, that's thanks to Brian. Hey, you should have seen me at 14 years old um, <laughs> when I was so down on myself, so hard on myself. And I continued to be hard on myself throughout my career. But I, I tried to channel it and, um, and let myself know it's okay to lose a point here and there and not let it affect me um, and have that short memory, which was – that was a real, real journey for me to get to having a short memory because that's not something that's natural. I was one that dwelled on things and would let things linger and be frustrated about losses. Um, and with Brian, he, he really helped me. Uh, and also some of the veterans on tour, the Todd Martins, the Pete Sampras's, that, that helped me to – to not be as hard on myself for so long. It's, it's okay to be hard on yourself, but then you have to let some of the, the negative thoughts go pretty quickly. And Brian was great about that. Um, I w was so lucky to have Brian because I think he was, he was great with X's and O's when it came to scouting reports and things like that. But he also was so good with the big picture stuff, with getting me in the right frame of mind, with knowing when I was burned out, knowing when to mm -hmm. call a practice, knowing when to, to push me harder, knowing when um, I needed a break, knowing when I needed um, – you know, to play more. And he was, he was just really good at, uh, at big picture stuff. I think that's credit to you though, to be open to that as well. I mean, you have to have a player. I feel like that's open to listening. Yeah. And again, that's trusting the inner circle, trusting yeah. Brian. I, I took my first lesson with Brian when I was 11 years old, I think. And he was my coach, um, pretty much almost my entire career. And so having that level of trust, um, I thought was also something that was beneficial to me because I knew no matter what, we never had an official contract. I paid him. He, he was okay with me paying him what I thought was fair. And I was okay with him, you know, getting bonuses and, and doing well when I did well. I, I, and so we had such a great trust of each other that, um, I don't think I would have had that relationship with any other coach that I was just, introduced to at 25, 26 years old. I knew he cared about me. I knew he wanted me to do well, um, not for his own benefit. He wasn't, this wasn't a paycheck for him. This wasn't just a job. This was something he cared about. He cared about making me better. And that's full credit to him because I can't think of that many coaches out on tour that have that agenda of just making their player as good as he can be and not looking for any 
credit, knocking for looking for any accolades. He hasn't taken another pro job since then. He's been offered a ton of them. Wow. Um, he just wanted me to do well. Yeah, and that's awesome. I mean, I remember yeah. seeing you guys all the time. Obviously, I know Brian really, really. You guys have a great yeah. relationship. Yeah. Something I want to go back to that you said about okay. I liked your perspective on seeing the players in the locker room and yeah. knowing like. You know, maybe they're not top 50, but like 60, yeah. 70, 80, those players, and having respect for all of them because everybody's good. Yeah. You were at that stage at one point, honestly yeah. had to work your way up. What What was the difference? Because it's so hard to break that top yeah. 20, top 10, mm-hmm. and now top 5 for you. Yeah. What was the biggest difference to, for you to break that, break that top five barrier? To me, I think the biggest difference was consistency. Um, and that probably seems weird to anyone that's seen me play because my game was not all about consistency. It was about a somewhat high-risk, uh, high-reward tennis. Um, but that was what I felt was the best way to have consistency over the long haul of winning the most matches. I didn't think I could play well enough playing defensive, playing uh, not to lose. That kind of tennis for me was – was not effective. I didn't have that skill set. I had to be aggressive, but my aggressive play, even when I was when I was top ten in the world, my 100% was the same when I was top ten as it was when I was 100 probably. But it was that the fact that when I had an off day, when I was top ten in the world, my off day was 96%, as opposed to when I was 100 in the world, my off day was 60%. I could That's lose to anyone oh, of, of my potential. I, I was yeah, yeah okay. my off day on the court. I was not nearly I as good. No, 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 no. My, my, my day when I wasn't playing that well was so much worse than my day when I wasn't playing well, when I was at towards the top of the game. Um, and that was when you win so many more matches and you give yourself that opportunity, uh, week in, week out of those days when you are playing hundred percent, when you're playing your absolute best, um, and you can take advantage of those as opposed to when you're 70, 80 in the world, some of those guys will have that one great week where everything's clicking and then they can't put it together the next week. Right. Their mindset is, has changed a little because they just won a title or because they just made semis of, of a tournament when they weren't expected to, and then they have two weeks of kind of a low. And as I, what I noticed when I was doing well in top ten in the world, I, was, I, won't, I won't say I was on autopilot, but it felt comfortable to have those wins and then go into the next week and still have the same motivation, the same consistency. Mm-hmm. And even if I had a little bit of a lull, it would last a couple of points as opposed to a couple of games or a couple of sets or a whole match. My lulls were so much shorter, and I got right back to having the confidence in that level of play was always going to be high enough that I was still going to win a lot of matches. Where is there something specifically you would say to yourself, or you just it was just kind of a process of having that deep motivation day in and day out? Yeah, it was, it was all the hard work. There's a cumulative effect of the hard work put in from – uh, the early years on tour and then believing that that hard work had paid off and that I had gotten to the point where I feel like I deserve to be here. I feel like I belong. That took a little while for me to believe once I got on tour, that took a while for me to get to just top hundred to believe I belong there. And then once I believed I belonged, then it was okay. Well now what do I need to do to get to the next level? And that was make sure I won those matches when I wasn't playing as well. And so I would, I would consciously think about that. Like, okay, I just had a bad game, you know, and, with my style of play, that was going to happen. I was going to make four errors in a game at a time and get broken. Okay, now what do I need to do? That This could spiral into losing the set 6-2 and being frustrated and you know restarting then, but no, let's restart right now. Let's, on this changeover, see if I can get this break back, put pressure on my opponent, see if I can still make them serve it out, whatever I needed to do. And um, it, it ended up paying dividends because it turned into a lot more wins. Mm-hmm. And just having that uh, ability to bounce back a lot quicker than when I was playing in the challengers or when I was uh, sort of 
um, at the bottom tier of those tour events when I was just trying to get through a first round. When I was feeling comfortable getting through first, second, third rounds and being in semis and finals more, um, it was just that feeling of there won't be those lulls. And I, and I feel like the locker room talks. The locker room knows if you hang with a certain player for, a mm-hmm. long, for long enough and they've got this streak, um, they're going to they're gonna have, have a valley too. And I think when I first started on tour, that was probably the locker room talk on me. Like, okay, he can go through a period of he's going to rip five, so four. So you sense that maybe. Oh, like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I definitely sense the shift in the locker room and, and knowing that, you know, this isn't going to be one where someone can just show up and make a lot of balls and they're going to get enough errors out of me and, and they're going to win this match. I feel like eventually it became – once I started showing I'm not – this isn't – one match I'm just uh, this isn't a fluke that I just won this one I'm gonna keep doing this then I got to the point where guys were feeling like they needed to do more and I felt like some some players had to press against me because they felt like once I start getting rolling like there may not be a stop to this it may keep going for two straight sets and so I need to do something and and shift uh, my focus as opposed to guys that early on in my career felt like you know what I can just hang with him He's going to have a, a little bit of a, a, a bad stretch, and then he might get frustrated and a little too hard on himself, and then, you know, you kind of got me. And, and early in my career, that was probably true. As I improved, trial and error, got better, got more confidence, I don't feel like that was the case. I don't feel like people could do that. And I feel like the, the, locker, rooms, the locker rooms know more than we think. The locker yeah. rooms always are, are pretty accurate about what, uh, what the sort of the, the reputation is. And to get to that stage, was that purely you and Brian, or did you did you work with a sports psychologist? Did you know? No, again, I was lucky. Brian, in my opinion, and I'm probably giving him uh, a big head, but I think he was as good as any sports psychologist I could have ever had yeah. in terms of when we talked about um, the mindset of of the game, of my of of my mindset, of just in general the mindset of a tennis player, taking pressure off, um, and we we talked a lot about that. So I. I credit him with being as good as any sports psychologist I could have ever worked with yeah I mean I spoke to Paul Anacone briefly before Mm -hmm. you sat down and we were talking about he felt like a biggest challenge especially now from when you played was the more distractions yeah do you feel like you can get to that level of focus that you're talking about with all the distractions of social media that's happening you know, I, I think about how lucky I am that I played before the time of social media because I wouldn't want to uh, get on Twitter right after I finish a match and see a thousand death threats and people getting angry at me and yelling at me. And I actually I don't know how to react because I, I feel like I would have tried to just laugh that off. Mm-hmm. At some point, it can be grating, though. It can really wear on over you. And, and I, I, I tended to look, I, as I said, I was pretty hard on myself. I've tended to often look at press conferences right after a match, especially after a loss, as almost like the relief I needed. Um, and this is, it sounds strange because I know there's a lot of talk right now about mental health and about those press conferences and how much it's the same thing over and over. And I felt like it was the same thing over and over. And every time I lost, I went into that press conference and every reporter acted like it was the worst thing in the world. Like the world was going to end and my life was over. And it almost made me snap back out of it and say, you know what? I lost a tennis match today. I didn't lose anyone in my family. I didn't, you know, I didn't get hurt. Hopefully there's, you know, I guarantee someone in this room had a worse day than I did. So I can't sit here and cry about it. I can't sit here and be that angry or, you know, that, um, you know, crestfallen over one match. I need to get back and do what I need to do and practice and get better. And so I almost looked at that as like my way of not laughing off, but like getting over the fact that there are going to be so many people that take this even harder than I do. And if I were to see that on social media and see all these people yelling at me about it, I would, I would try to think like, you know what? 
every one of these people probably had a worse day than I did, whether it's because they're these gamblers that are losing money on me, you know, or they're just huge fans and they're upset that I lost or whatever the reason is for them. They're just hateful, spiteful people that want to try to tear someone down when they're at their lowest, whatever the reason is, they're probably not as happy as I am. So I try to look at it that way, but I don't know. uh, Cause especially if you start in this, if you're 18 years old on tour now, you've grown up with Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and whatever. And you look to that as part of your, your interaction with society, which to me is sad because it used to be very face to face. You meet people, you do a press conference in person. You talk to these people. These are the same people you get to know for a long time. You go in the locker room, you're talking to you're not just texting people or you're not just, um, interacting over a, a social media platform. So I don't know how I would have dealt with it, but I think players have to, that's it that for Paul Anacone to talk about how difficult it is now. I think it, it shows that he dealt with Sampras and Roger right. during and times with Fritz a little bit. So and, I tried to get that perspective because now with a youngster that's grown up with that. Yeah. And I think it, it is a very difficult pressure to get used to compared to many, many years ago. I wonder what it would have been like if John McEnroe, there was Twitter around then and how many people would have been so upset at his outbursts right. and would he have cared and would he have, would it have made them worse or would it have made him a bigger star than he already was because all these people really loved that those outbursts so they really hated it and it became you know so divisive and it's um it's interesting to think about but all you can do is is play in the, the era you were in and i feel very lucky that i wasn't in in this era right yeah, now Yeah, i do too actually yeah. yeah yeah and then just i mean i know you're playing a lot of roles obviously here tournament director at miami yeah what have you learned from that? That must have been a huge learning experience. What is this, this, this third or fourth year? What this is, I started in 18, year? but we missed a year. Missed a year, okay. So it's my, I've, I've had three, uh, I've had three tournaments that I've okay. uh, been a part of. It would have been four in 2020 if, if it had happened. But um, so what I learned is it's, there's a lot more that goes into a tournament than you really believe when you're a player. When you're a player, you're such, you live in such a small um, sort of a bubble and you feel like, the tour entirely revolves around the players and that's it. That's the whole universe is the players. They sell the tickets, they do everything there. And then you become a tournament director and you realize there's the sponsors, there's the media, there's the foreign sponsors, there's the ticket sales. There's, um, there's so many other things that go into it. Um, that I would love to have players sometimes sit in some of the scheduling meetings, some of the sponsor meetings, some of the things that, that go on. Um, obviously they couldn't make that happen. I no, no, no. <laughs> and, and I thought about it and then I said, no, there's no way. Cause I, I remember how focused I was and how much I had to sacrifice and how much I had to, it benefits you to be in that bubble. You mm-hmm. have to be somewhat in that bubble to be successful, uh, in my opinion, or, or as successful as you can be. Um, you have to be focused on your craft and, so it's just funny to me now to see the players and what they care about, what they say they need. And I, being someone that was a foreign player, I can sympathize with them and I can say, you know, that's more of a want than a need. How has that cha- pay- Wait, like, for example, how has that changed? Um, that surprised just, you. Oh, no, it didn't surprise me. It's, oh. I, I knew players are going to be very um, yeah. persistent about the, what they want or what they need. And I was as well when I was a player. And there's a ton of players I knew that were um, coming to Torrent Directors and wanting to play at this time and oh, wanting right, this yeah. extra hotel room, wanting the, you know whatever treatment you want or expect. Um, there's tons of those requests. So those are not surprising at all. Um, the only thing that surprised me was how much um, thought goes into almost every decision with a tournament. Cause as a player, you show up, you expect certain things and you think, Oh, 
you know, stringings here and the schedule will be out at this time and this will be at, that, at this time. And um, you don't realize how much goes into the thought process between having stringing at this spot and having the dining area at this spot and what works with the flow of the, of the well. facility and all. That. And then um, and then how much goes into the scheduling. The scheduling meetings have been the most baffling to me. Like it every day, how much goes into putting that matrix together of, of the schedule to make you try to make everyone happy and you never make everyone happy. You make maybe one person happy out of it all, but you try to figure out the best way um, to fit everything together. And I know this is um, talking about the tours in general and being a tournament director at a combined event. Mm -hmm. This is a big topic of discussion. I'm sure you know where I'm going is your perspective on, obviously there's been a lot of talk of combining the tours. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's beneficial or? I do. I do actually think it's beneficial because I think, um, Tennis goes through cycles a lot of times, I think. And sometimes it's the men that are more popular. Sometimes it's the women that are more popular. Um, But I think they can play off each other because I think if you're a huge fan of Rafa Nadal or you're a huge fan of Ash Barty, you may show up and you may find that you also, if you're a huge fan of Rafa, you may show up and find, hey, watching Ash Barty is also fun. Mm. If you're a huge Ash Barty fan and you show up and you watch Rafa, hey, watching him is fun too. You can be exposed to more of the sport. And I think um, I, I think it's sort of the, the rising tide uh, raises all ships. I think as the sport of tennis grows, uh, men's and women's, it can just be beneficial to both. And I understand that there are some that feel like they're going to carry more of the burden. Um, I'm sure that's more of a sentiment in the, the men's locker room right now that they feel like they would carry the burden and uh, of the popularity. But I think there will be times that the women will carry the burden. And um, instead of, I don't want to say nitpicking, but fighting over you know, who's, who's getting more and who's dealing with this more and who's dealing with that. Let's just try to make tennis better in general. And I think if they were combined, you're going to combine forces. You're going to combine, um, a lot of talent, a lot of, um, a lot of personalities, and you can make it that you see how successful a lot of these combined events are on the individual side. The events are are very successful. So let's find a way to make the tours together Mm -hmm. successful. And and I, I do think it's possible. Um, I would love to see it, but I also know that there's a lot that goes into it behind the scenes, a lot that would go into um, the day-to-day operations of making a combined tour and whether that's possible with the sponsors that are on board right now. That I don't know, and I haven't delved into all of that, and uh, I'm sure someone much smarter than me has delved into it and tried to work on it, and I hope they I hope they can. Well, that's why I was curious because you obviously played at a lot of combined events. Mm-hmm. And now being a tournament director can somewhat see the business aspect mm. of it. Do you think economically it would it would be benefit? I, I think it would be benefit seeing all of us together as well, but economically as well? Or- I do think it would. I mean, it, it, it causes a lot of um, logistical issues you know you got different balls for uh for both tours you got um obviously you've got more players on site you need more practice courts uh, uh, combined events are not possible at some events just because of the foot the footprint there's just isn't enough there aren't enough courts there isn't enough time on on practice courts there's just no no way to do that there there aren't enough there's enough space for the two locker rooms whatever it is there there's some places where it's not possible but anytime you have the ability to do it I do think the product is better. I think you you bring in more fans, you bring in more you you shine a better light on the sport in these combined events. So then it becomes how many of these events can we have? How can we put the tours together and logistically how possible is it? Then do we combine and make it so that there's one ball for both tours as opposed to um the heavy duty and the regular duty that we use uh for men and women at at some of these combined events and 
you know, then there's going to be a lot of other small logistical things that, that need to be thought of, but that's going to take, again, someone smarter than me to figure it out. And as far as, like, marketing, because, I mean, I feel like that would be a great market, to the combined events mm-hmm. and tours as well. Any other things that you think would be beneficial to market more players in general? I mean, obviously, we've got the big, yeah, the big stars. I, I think uh, you're seeing right now in, in the women's game, you see such variety. You see so many different – there was, I think it went uh, 16 straight different semifinalists in Grand Slams uh, for the women. So I think the next sort of phase is not just marketing the top players, marketing all the way down the line because there's you never know in a given week who's going to be that star. So if you've never marketed Krajikova um, and she goes and wins the Roland Garros – it'd be nice to have something already in the hopper of some marketing of her, uh, of some of the people that are a little further down the line that then they have a breakout uh, week, two weeks, and you need to scramble to get some sort of marketing uh, on them as opposed to getting it all done early. And I I don't know, I'm I'm not going to get behind the economics of how much that would cost to market so many down there, but that's what I would like to see. I mean, in a perfect world, I'd love to see more than just the top three or four that are so heavily marketed. Right. And then, and then, just shifting back to, I want I want to know your perspective on the men's. Obviously, you got to play mm-hmm. the top the top three that we mm-hmm. talk about consistently. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, super impressive. Yeah. The, the next generation coming up, who did you feel like? Who do you have your eyes on that have really impressed you? Well, right now, I would say. Um I feel like American tennis is in a good spot, even though that sounds weird because we don't have anyone in the top 10. Um, but I do think these young guys have a lot of ability. Jensen Brooksby, Riley Pelka, Sebastian Corda. Um, you know, they, I, I would put Sebastian Corda at the top of the list of guys that I think can win Grand Slams in the future, have a huge impact on the, on the sport. I love his mentality. I love his, his game style. What about um, his mentality do you love? Well, he comes from a tradition of champions his father being getting two in the world his mother being a successful uh tour player his two sisters being at the absolute top of the game and in, in women's golf so i feel like it's natural for him to be successful which is incredibly incredibly uh i mean there, there needs to be more stories about that family for how, how good that is because you and i know how difficult it is for one person to be a pro athlete but to have five professional athletes in one uh in one family is just absolutely incredible and i don't know i'd have to think if there's there have been that many in one family it's crazy um certainly not in tennis i don't think but i'm just impressed with the fact that he takes things in stride he's not in a hurry to like to try to rush just to be to be a grand slam champion tomorrow i think he knows it's a process i think his dad and mom have definitely helped him with that i think seeing his his sister have uh, a ton of success on the lpj tour has helped him but i, I just he works really well with dean goldfine dean's worked with with top players like todd martin and, and andy roddick so i think he can keep him calm he can keep him focusing on the journey and for Sebastian, I think he has the skills, and it's just going to take time of, uh, of maturing a bit physically and, and getting a little bit stronger on the court, and I think uh, the rest of the tools are there. Ken, last question. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, if we have a wife and kids, yes. Yes. from what you've learned as being a professional athlete, yeah. what, would you, what are the most important things that you would tell your kids about that experience for you as they're growing up? What would I tell my kids about being a pro athlete? Well, about what you've learned from being a pro athlete, whether it's what you've learned as an athlete, what you, what an, as an athlete you learned about life lessons. Okay. Um, I mean, probably a couple things. One, um, one is one I, t- I, I tell my kids all the time is all you do is you do your best. You know, that's all you can do. That's all you can control is that you're, you're, um, 
your effort level is something you can always control. You can be the hardest worker out there, um, but you, you might not always be the best player. You might not always be the winner on that day, but you can do your best. And you get so much out of that, out of being the best you can be, um, that you will never regret it. I tell them you will never regret working hard and, and doing that. And that's something I learned on tour is that I have plenty of losses, tons of losses on tour, but um, I don't regret them anywhere i mean i obviously i would have loved to have won those matches but i have no regrets for them because i know i did my best and so um anything more than that i always felt like was greedy if i was expecting to win more um that's just greedy because i did my best so I, I look to my kids to tell them you know what you do your best and things will work out in the end you may not win and you can be upset and you can be frustrated that you lost all you want but as long as you know you did your best that will pass and you will be okay with the fact that you're uh you're putting your best effort in. So I try, to, I try to teach them that. And then the other thing I learned is to be the exact opposite of how I was as an athlete, as a family person, because you have to be unbelievably selfish to be an athlete, um, and you have to be unbelievably selfless to have kids and to have a family. So I, I am so enjoying the entire 180 from being an athlete where you have to focus everything on your schedule, on everything that you're doing, to now focusing – first thing in the morning when you wake up it's what are we doing for the kids for breakfast what are we doing to get them ready for school what are we doing for their after school activities and being um their their cheerleader their support system their shoulder to cry on um their disciplinarian at times and focusing so much on that it um it's been fun so i learned what not to do as a parent is is don't be selfish like you are as an athlete Well, that's incredibly well said, and we're going to leave it at that. But your <laughs> family is lucky to have you. Tennis oh, is lucky you. to have you. So, James, thanks so much for your time. So generous. Thank you, Jill. Always a pleasure.